0: Like some strange creature from the Arabian Nights, the Sablan would emerge from the darkness, cutting off the bows of merchant ships headed for Kuwait. The crews knew what would come next. The imposing frigate built at Britain's Vickers shipyards would bear its fangs and rake the crew quarters with friar from its 35mm machine guns. Then As the frigate sailed away from the burning ship, there was a dark message from the Iranian captain, Abdullah Manavi. Have a nice day. This week, in response to anti-shipping missile attacks on merchant ships transiting the Red Sea, the latest the Panamanian flagged MSC Clara and the Norwegian-owned Swan Atlantic, the United States has dispatched a multinational fleet to protect commercial traffic headed into the Suez Canal. Large container operators are already pulling their ships out of the Red Sea's crowded lanes and asking them to transit around the tip of Africa instead. The multinational fleet is meant to show that insurgents can't shut down the world's maritime trade lanes. Even though Yemeni Houthi commanders are threatening to turn the Red Sea into the multinational forces' grave, the language probably shouldn't be taken too seriously. The Houthi missile threat though, should. The insurgent movement has used its drones and ballistic missiles to successfully target infrastructure, military bases and even well-defended oil refineries like Abkek and Khuresh in the Persian Gulf. The Houthi prose is painted in pro-Palestinian language, Their objectives in this conflict are fundamentally political. Houthi missiles pose a marginal threat to Israel or global shipping. The Houthis are, however, locked in secret talks with Saudi Arabia and want to show the world they can turn the brush fires from the Israel-Palestinian conflict into a raging fire across the volatile region if their demands for control of Yemen are not met. From the battle of the tankers, which raged between Iraq and Iran from 1980 to 1988, and eventually drew in the United States Navy, strategists should be preparing for a long, bloody struggle. Early in the summer of 1984, the small Libyan cargo ship Ghat began its journey to the Eritrean port of Asab, filled with a cargo of crated goods, food and state-of-the-art Soviet-made acoustic mines, capable of detonating when they detected the sound of a ship's propellers. The crew rolled the mines off the back of the ghat once they had crossed the Suez Canal, historian David Christ has recorded, and then quietly skulked back home. Inside weeks, shipping coming across the Suez Canal was hitting mines, the explosions far too loud not to be heard by international communities. Faced with this new threat to global shipping, the United States moved in minesweeping sweeping helicopters. But the work was painfully slow. The Suez Canal was littered with decades of debris. And every abandoned oil drum was a potential mine. King Fahad bin Abdul Rahman of Saudi Arabia chose that particular time to make a fortnight's yacht trip and had to be escorted by American helicopters. Iran watched this story and learned the right lessons. Libya had planted the mines as revenge for its global isolation and international sanctions. Iraq's dictator Saddam Hussein had gone to war against Iran in 1981 expecting its revolutionary government to collapse. Instead, his army faced stalemates and reverses. To break the deadlock, Iraq had begun bombing Iranian shipping in the northern Persian Gulf. Atlas 1, a Turkish oil tanker loading Iranian oil at Kharg Island, became the first international ship caught up in these attacks. The Iraqi effort to choke Iranian shipping military expert Anthony Cordesman has noted, largely failed. Iran moved its oil transshipment hub to Kharg Island and used its own tankers to make the most dangerous part of the journey to Basra. Iranians knew the attacks were intended to force them into attempting a blockade of the Straits of Hormuz through which much of the world's energy passed. That would have invited international intervention, And Tehran was determined not to walk into the trap. From 1984, though, Iraq acquired combat aircraft with longer ranges, capable of delivering lethal missiles. Losses surged. Iran, which had not carried out a single attack on international shipping from 1981 to 1983, knew it had to strike back. But how to do that without inviting an inevitable escalation. The answer lay with what the Libyans had done. Advances made in Iran's naval capabilities shaped its response. The country's navy, trained and equipped by the West before the revolution, centred around its four British-made frigates. By 1986, though, the country had begun producing large numbers of cheap anti-ship mines derived from North Korean and Soviet designs. The mines were laid around Kuwait, the shipping hub for Iraqi oil by vessels camouflaged as trading dhows. Iran also developed fast attack boats to stage hit-and-run raids on merchant shipping. The escalation served its purpose. Kuwait desperately pleaded with both superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, for help. The United States considered reflagging the kingdom's ships and sailing them under military escort. Even as these escort plans were discussed though, an Iraqi combat jet accidentally hit one of the ships brought in for convoy protection duties with an Exocet missile. 37 American sailors were killed. Scholar Norman Friedman notes that the crew aboard the USS Stark were aware of the threat from the Iraqi combat jet but hesitated to retaliate due to restrictive rules of engagement that permitted the use of force only in self-defense. By the time they determined there was a threat, it was too late. To make things even worse for the Americans, the first of the protected convoys saw the reflagged ship Rekka, called the Bridgeton under a US flag, struck by a mine. The mine did little to damage the giant cargo ship, But the spectacle of the vessel limping into port, with two of its escort ships using it as a shield, proved a public relations disaster. Further investigation, scholar Stephen Pelletier writes, led to revelations the United States had no usable minesweepers to guard against Iran's crude mines. Lessons learnt in the early months of the United States operations though, Led to a dramatic expansion of its fleet and capabilities in the region. Following severe damage to the frigate Samuel B. Roberts in 1988, the United States finally escalated the tempo of its counterattacks on Iran, damaging the Salaban, the ship I began by telling you about, and sinking its sister ship, the Salahan. The United States also sank and damaged a number of small Iranian attack craft. Even though Iran's much smaller, and sanctions hit navy had put up stiff resistance, the losses it was taking became unsustainable. The real damage to Iran, though, was being inflicted elsewhere. The Central Intelligence Agency's technical support allowed Iraq to improve its targeting of Iran's military and plug gaps in its own defences. The savage bombardment of cities by both countries, moreover, led to growing pressure on Tehran's theocratic regime to end the fighting. Like the Iranians, the Houthis have shown ingenuity in pursuing irregular warfare over the seas. Even before the Israeli-linked cargo ship Galaxy Leader was hijacked last month, the Houthis had shown skill in using small islands they control to target shipping in the Red Sea. The United Arab Emirates flag Rawabi, for example, was held from January to April last year and only released after the payment of a huge dollar ransom. The Houthis, unlike Iran, are much more resilient to Western pressure. For one thing, they have few cities or conventional military infrastructure or factories to defend, giving them strength in the face of international pressure. What will the world bomb? The consequences of a crisis in the Red Sea, likely, won't be catastrophic. Even though eight days are added to a Shanghai-Rotterdam trip, say by large container ships having to round the south of Africa. That's kind of even out by avoiding heavy transit fees levied by Egypt to go through the Suez Canal. 10% of the global oil trade is estimated to transit through the Suez Canal. A significant but not catastrophic percentage. The Houthis have shown they have the capacity to harry and disrupt oil production and shipping but not to degrade the world's energy infrastructure altogether. For the West, though, the crisis in the Red Sea holds out an important lesson. Efforts to keep the Israel-Palestine crisis contained to Gaza are unlikely to succeed as other movements and forces opportunistically feed off the opportunities it gives them. I'm Praveen Swami, and I'm a contributing editor at The Print. Thank you again for watching Security Code.